Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCreary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, my guest is Allie Lapp, best known as the founder of HMP 10 years ago, HMP being House Majority Pack, which she still oversees today. In that role, Allie raises and allocates tens of millions of dollars a cycle to help Democrats win U.S. House seats in addition to being directly involved in HMP's strategic decision-making. In short, when it comes to house races, Allie is one of the most influential people in the country, and I'm excited to talk to her today. Allie Lapp, tell me how you grew up. I grew up uh, on the West Coast. I always start with that. Um, I was born in California. When I was about five, we moved up to a suburb of Seattle called Kent, My parents actually both worked in the airline industry. My mom was a flight attendant. They actually met in flight attendant school. Uh, And then my dad transitioned into working at the airport. So they could sort of move anywhere and they decided they wanted to live near Seattle. And so we lived there. It was a very kind of middle-class upbringing. We lived in a suburb. I went to public schools. Um, It was not a particularly political family. They were both diehard Democrats and voters, but they did not get involved in political campaigns or politics, you know, in their everyday lives. Yeah. And what are some of your earlier political memories? You mentioned your parents, you mentioned your family were not rabid political consumers, but what are some of your earlier political memories as a kid growing up in in suburban Seattle? Was there a campaign, a candidate, a cause, uh, an issue that captured your attention at a young age? Yeah, my first political memory was in the 84 presidential election. Um, I think my parents were super jazzed up about the fact that a woman was on the ticket. And so I distinctly remember my mom taking my little brother and me to Boeing Field, where Geraldine Ferraro's plane landed for, you know, she must have been doing some kind of campaign stop. And there was a small crowd gathered at Boeing Field. We had signs, Mondale Ferraro signs, and we showed up there to see her plane land. Yeah, we'll talk a bit about the um, the politics of Washington State as you were coming of age. You know, I would say I was not super politically aware of what was happening in Washington State in the 80s, but I definitely became aware of it in my uh, high school and college years in the 90s. And Washington State was a truly fascinating political environment back then. It was it really swung so far in one direction to another. Um, the 94 Republican wave was just monstrous in, in Washington state. Um, the Christian coalition really took over the Republican party in Washington state before it took over the party in the country at large. So it, it was a really fascinating place to be. I I worked on a state Senate race, which we might talk a little bit about Adam Smith later, but I worked on Adam's state Senate reelection campaign in 1994. And he was literally the only Democrat not from the city of Seattle to be reelected in 94. It was just a wipeout. And that was the case on the congressional federal level as well in 94. Yeah, I mean, infamously, uh, this Democratic Speaker of the House, Tom Foley from uh, uh, Eastern Washington, lost a re-election. You know, one of the things that I think is so fascinating about Washington State. So I grew up halfway between Seattle and Tacoma, a very middle class, working class suburb called Kent. And the east side, which is a little bit up north, that's directly east of Seattle, Bellevue, Mercer Island, 
that was sort of the wealthier part of the state still is that's where Microsoft is now. And, and that's kind of the tech hub is, is out in that direction. But back when I was starting to get involved with politics, that was the most Republican part of the state. And so the idea of a Democrat being elected from somewhere like Mercer Island or Bellevue seemed absolutely crazy. And now it's really completely changed. Just it's it's a microcosm of the country at large where Mercer Island and Bellevue and Kirkland and those areas are very reliably blue. And it is the eastern Washington that Tom Foley used to represent that has become just a mainstay of Republican politics. You think there's something unique about Washington state? I mean, not so much in the era that you mentioned, although certainly uh, Patty Murray in 1992 is an example, but Washington state has really been at the forefront of women being elected to uh, to office, to Democratic women senators, Christine Gregoire, a governor, uh, disproportionately high numbers relative to other states in the legislature. Do you think there's something unique? about? Is this a fluke? Is this just like a political fluke? Or do you think there's well, something I, unique I about add- Washington? Yeah, and I I would add to your litany of of women being elected, you know, the city of Seattle, I think was the first city that, you know, frankly, is so white that elected a non-white mayor in in Mayor Rice um, years and years ago. So it, it is it is a really interesting state in that way. And I think it's, you know, you definitely have that pioneer spirit of entrepreneurship and looking for outsiders in Washington state that I think has really helped Democrats. I think like in some other states, you know, the Republican party beginning in 94 has been captured by a real right-wing extremist kind of group. And so it's almost impossible for Republicans to compete statewide, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a progressive state that likes to elect women. It's also so isolated from Washington, DC. You know, Mm -hmm. I always joke like, when I applied to college, the idea of like crossing the eastern border of Washington state would have been crazy to me. Like I, I never looked at schools back east or in the south or even the Midwest. I looked at like California, Oregon and Washington. And you really do get isolated out there. And, and the world of Washington, D.C. seems really far away. Even when I started working in politics, I never had some big ambition of moving to D.C. and, and working in D.C. We'll talk about that some. You mentioned you uh, one of your early, maybe first uh, political jobs, first political forays was working for state senator Adam Smith in your early mid twenties. So t- talk about how you go from a kid growing up uh, who's you know seeing what's going on around you, but not necessarily from a political family, not necessarily bit by the political bug at a super early age. So how do you find yourself you know, working in politics at that point? You know, I never even knew that you could work in politics other than maybe run for office. I really was quite clueless about the whole industry that surrounds politics and government, you know, from campaigns to policy people. I went to a small liberal arts school called the University of Puget Sound, which I loved in Tacoma, Washington. They, like most liberal arts schools, have a pretty rigorous core curriculum. And I had to sign up for a class that met a requirement, and it was a politics and government class. And I really liked it. And I said, I think I want to major in this. This is really interesting. Oh, there's all these jobs you can do. That's fascinating. And in between my, I think my junior and senior year, I volunteered for a legislative campaign. And it happened to be Adam Smith's legislative campaign for re-election in 94. And partly because he was just a Democrat and he represented part of my hometown in Kent. So I volunteered on that campaign. And that's really what kind of got me bit. Um, I was really interested in it. I then 
took a semester off and interned in the state legislature, which was a, for Adam. Um, it was a fascinating experience. And I realized like, this is really what I want to do. He decided to run for Congress. I was the second person hired on his congressional campaign. And the next thing I knew, I was moving to D.C. to work for him. Yeah, we'll talk a bit about that 94 campaign, your very first campaign. What are you doing? What does that look like? It's all new to you at that point, right? So what is what is your experience on that, you know, the state Senate race, a legislative race in Washington state? You know, talk a bit about what your experiences were on that very first uh, race. Yeah, so I was a couple times a week intern. Um, the campaign office was literally in Adam Smith's townhouse basement. He had a great manager, a woman named Shannon, who ironically now is my next door neighbor here in Falls Church, Virginia, which is a super fun story. One of my best friends. And I showed up at the basement office and I did whatever Shannon asked me to do. And usually that was go put up yard signs or go doorbelling. Um, and that, but you know, you took out a list of voters and you walked around and knocked on doors and gave them literature. And in 1994, in the working class suburbs of Seattle, that got dicey sometimes for sure. So it was, it was, uh, it was baptism by fire, but it was great. Like I really understood, you know, how do you decide which voters you're targeting at the door? Who do you, who do you knock on? Who do you skip? What's your messaging? All the little pieces that make a campaign work, you know, I got to sort of experience them firsthand. It was a great education. And so you mentioned that Adam Smith, as you'd mentioned earlier, one of the few Democrats outside of outside of Seattle who was reelected in that 94 Republican wave. You mentioned 96. You roll pretty soon into his congressional campaign. And you talked earlier about how the uh, really the Christian right had uh, had taken over, uh, was very influential uh, in the Republican Party, even in Washington state. And you were uh, confronted with that to some degree in that 1996 race. So can you talk about your experiences on that 96 race? And first of all, were you were you did you start off as the campaign manager? What was your role? No. So, I, you know, I have to say one, I have been lucky in a lot of ways in my career and in my life. And one of them truly was getting connected with Adam. Adam, um, for those who don't know, he's now the chair of the Armed Services Committee. But in 1990, Adam decided to run for the state Senate. He was 25 years old. Um, he ran against a longtime, pretty moderate, well-liked Republican state senator, a woman, older woman. Nobody gave him a chance. Like people were like, this is crazy. He, his dad had been a machinist, which is a pretty powerful union in Washington state. Um, and they, you know, I think they were like, all right, kid, you know, let's, let's see what you can do. But nobody else gave him a chance. And he won. Um, and so he was someone who had been young and underestimated and was was elected to the state Senate. So I, I say all that to to say, look, Adam was like, you know, you're still in college. You're just a kid. You've never worked on a campaign before. I don't care. Like, come on board and let's see what you can do. Um, so after interning for him in the legislature, his kind of right-hand guy, a guy named Jeff Bjornstad, was the campaign manager for his congressional race. I was the second person hired, and Jeff and I kind of did everything for about six months. We called donors. We doorbelled. We ordered yard signs. We wrote the brochures and the pamphlets. So I kind of got exposed to all of it. And then as our staff filled out, I took on the role of field director. So I did all the field directing and I, I organized the volunteers and, and that was that was super fun. I really I really liked that. Um, and then we won and Jeff was finishing law school. So Jeff stayed in Washington State and I moved to D.C. 
the Republican incumbent you defeated there, what Randy Tate, who sort of has an unusual political footnote on his own. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about, about that race? Yeah. So Randy Tate was our opponent. The ninth district was created in the 90 census and it elected a Democrat in 92 and in 94, it elected Randy Tate. And then in 96, we unseated Randy Tate. Randy then went on to head the Christian coalition nationally when Ralph Reed stepped down. So he was, you know, definitely kind of came from that vein of the Republican Party. The campaign manager in the 96 race wants to stay uh, in state. And that gives you that opens the door. That gives you an opportunity uh, to be to go to Washington with uh, Congressman uh, Adam Smith. So how were you thinking about that decision? You know, as you say, you felt pretty disconnected from what was going on uh, in D.C. Uh, so what was that process like? How were you thinking about that uh, at the time? Yeah, I mean, I was I was 21 and I, I actually still remember to this day I was driving in the car with Adam. We were like going doorbelling, of course. It was like three weeks before Election Day. And he was like, you know, if I win, I really want you to come to D.C. with me. And truly, I know this sounds so naive. I had never even considered the possibility. I really thought, like, I want to keep working in politics in Washington state. I'll go work at the state party. I'll go work at the Sierra Club. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. I should. I should consider that. And, you know, I couldn't say no to that. It was a great offer. I was hired on as his communications director. I also got to do a lot of his sort of DC politics. What with the chief of staff not being there? He was a pretty active member of the new Democrat coalition. So I got to do the work with that organization, which was also really, really fascinating. But even at the time I thought, you know, maybe I'll be in DC two years, four years. I'll move back home. I never moved back home. <laughs> Well, talk about what it's like to, to work on the Hill in that era. This is mid-late 90s. Yeah, boy, there's a lot to say there. I mean, a, a couple things I'll, I'll just highlight. One, it was really great um, working on the Hill from a state as far away as Washington State. The delegation was very close. Most everyone who worked for a Washington State senator or member of Congress was from Washington State. So it was a very tight-knit community. It was pretty bipartisan. We did a lot of stuff together. <clears throat> Adam's office was all Washington State natives, except for one person who had interned on his campaign and came out with us. So we kind of traveled as a group and it was really fun. Um, we just, we really had a great time. It was, it was a different time. You know, we had a Democratic president. We had Republican control of the House. There was a lot of trying to kind of figure out how do you actually ever get anything done in this place? You know, the head of our delegation at the time was Congressman Norm Dix, who you know had worked for legendary Senator Warren Magnuson. Norm was a get it done kind of guy. So we all of us in the delegation, you know, I think benefited by watching how Norm got stuff done, even in a Republican Congress, and how you could really deliver and help people back home, you know, even if your party was not in the majority. Working on the Hill, I think any young person who's interested in politics, it's such a must do. You learn so much about policy, constituent services. You know, there's a real good government aspect of it too. Adam always really emphasized that part of it. Like we have to show the people of our district that government can work for them. And so there was really nothing more important we did than constituent casework. And if someone had a problem, you tried to solve it. And, and really answering letters and emails from constituents, you know, giving them the response and the, and the, and the answers that they deserved. 
Yeah, talk about that to somebody who has not worked in a in an office or seen that up close. What are some of the nuts and bolts? You get a constituent phone call and a constituent or constituent letter, and they're having a real legitimate issue. What 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 springs in to happen? What happens after you get that call? Well, I think most offices employ you know four to six caseworkers in their district office, and someone calls. They're having an issue with their social security. They're having an immigration issue. They're having a problem with the Veterans Affairs um, Department. And, and those people are so good at, you know, hopefully those people are so good at what they do, they're able to cut through the red tape, figure out how do you solve this problem for your constituent. Um, it's a big part of what you do. So there, there's that piece of it. Then there's also people writing in saying, hey, I'm really angry you voted no on this bill or please vote yes on this. And, and it's more policy centered. Um, but, you know, look, we we took those very seriously and really felt like people deserved a real answer as to why the congressman was voting the way he was and give them our explanation. And no matter what, always get back to them. You know, there's always kind of those hot issues that happen. But then there's also really important local issues. And even from the time he was a state senator, um, Adam always represented the airport, SeaTac International Airport, and there was always talk of building a third runway. So that local issue was always super important. And people were always wanting to know, like, where do you stand on this? And what are, you know, there obviously you have a lot of interests who want the third runway. Then you have local neighbors that really don't want the increased noise and traffic. So, um, you know, there's those local issues that can suddenly take over your office as well. Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no politics that gets people more fired up than airport politics. Uh, 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so no doubt about that. So talk there, about- there's a whole caucus in Congress of people who represent airports because oh. they have such unique issues around yeah. them. <laughs> uh, so talk a bit about the chief of staff uh, position. You, you you start in the communication sphere. You arise to the level of chief of staff. Talk about your days as chief of staff and how that position fits you and and and, and what you uh, what stands out to you about that era of your career. Chief of staff is a great job on the Hill, you know, particularly if you work for a great member who respects his staff, treats them well in it for all the right reasons. People enjoy working for him. They want to stay and he treats them well. So I felt really fortunate um, to have to have that job. I, I think a big part of the job is understanding the member's priorities, what he or she wants to work on. Um, how he or she wants to spend his time, and then structuring the office in such a way that it accomplishes those goals. You know, working with the district office is always one of the challenging parts of being the chief of staff. You know, generally out in the district, you've got a district director um, who's kind of doing a similar thing that you're doing, but but in the district. And so working with that person to make sure that the congressman's time there is also well spent, making sure you've got the right balance of policy priorities and, and, you know, the, the member's time is always the most valuable thing that you've got and, and how he or she is spending it is pretty critical. Um, you know, you're managing a staff of about 10 people in DC and generally you'll have another eight to 10 people out in your district office. And technically you're sort of overseeing all of them. You know, there's, there's politics, there's fundraising, there's policy. It's a little bit of everything. So it's, it's really a great job. Were there members that stood out to you as especially impressive that this person, he or she, they seem like the real deal, somebody who stood out to you based on your own interactions or, or your, your own personal experiences? When I, when I was on the Hill, I, I do feel like most of the members on both sides of the aisle are, are there for the right reasons. 
Um, and are, they're, they're going to have disagreements. You're, you're obviously not going to see eye to eye with everybody, but they are there to serve their country. They are there to try to make a difference for the people they represent. I feel like that was definitely the case when I was there. Nowadays, I'm I'm a little more skeptical, but but um, but but I do think that they were there for the right reasons. There were a lot of great members that we worked with um, through the New Democrat Coalition. Um, the late Ellen Tauscher, you know, she's always someone who was very nice to other people's staff. I, I always look at members and how they treat other members' staffs and how they treat their own staff. It's like, is that a good person or not? Um, and she, she was always, I mean, she's super smart. Uh, really knows her, really knew her stuff and, and was, you know, I thought went out of her way to be kind and talk to other people on other staffs. So you mentioned chief of staff is a, is a great job. How do you think about, how were you thinking about the process when you're, when you're leaving the office? You know, when I, I had, I had taken a few little leaves of absences from Adam's office. I moved back to Seattle for about five months to run John Kerry's caucus campaign in Washington state. Adam was an early endorser of Kerry. And this was at the time when Howard Dean was sky high. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll go back to the state. I'll run the caucus campaign, which we kind of thought was a lost cause. And then we won. So that was, that was great. And, you know, I, I realized I didn't miss the campaign world and really liked the politics, the politics of politics, I guess. So when um, Congressman Rahm Emanuel was chosen to lead the DCCC, I was, you know, interested in maybe going over there and 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 working uh, at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. So I went over there and I was the campaign director and I worked with the endangered incumbents to, you know, kind of shore up their seats since that's kind of what Adam Smith had done, taken a swing seat and kind of locked it down. So it, it was tough. Uh, it was a tough decision to leave. And And, you know, I loved working for Adam. I loved working for my home state. I loved spending two or three weeks every August in Seattle. There's nowhere better to be. But I was really interested in taking on a new challenge and and getting back more into pure campaign work. You you outlined your your portfolio there. 06, a good cycle to be uh, in, in Democratic House campaigns. Is there a campaign or a member that you interacted with that you felt like was a good example of what your job was trying to do that that uh, that maybe some of the work that you did or the DCCC did uh, helped actually protect a member who otherwise might have might have been in, uh, in in tougher shape? Yeah, I mean, look, we didn't lose a single incumbent in 2006. It's something I'm incredibly proud of. And Congressman Emanuel was laser beam focused in on those incumbents and what they needed to be doing to make sure they didn't lose. So he was constantly coming up with like, oh, Melissa Bean should do this and George Barrow should do that and talk to Leonard Boswell about, you know, doing X, Y or Z. So um, it was a job that the DCCC, I think, took more seriously than they ever had before. I actually went out to most of the folks on the frontline list to their district office and drove around with them and like saw the events they were doing. Um, I went out, you know, had some great barbecue in John Barrow's district. I remember that very distinctly. Uh, Went out to Melissa Bean's suburban Chicago district. And and I think that the, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the Democratic leadership really wanted to make sure that those new members, most of them were freshmen, although not all, um, that they had an opportunity to introduce and pass legislation and that they were you know, able to go home and talk to their constituents about some of the accomplishments. And, and I think that was very helpful to them. You know, and look, obviously, 2006 was a good cycle for Democrats. There, there were larger political forces at play. 
that really that really helped make sure Democrats held on to all their seats and, of course, picked up enough Republican seats to win back the majority. Rahm Emanuel worked at the DCCC as a staffer, uh, you know, in the in the 90s, the era you're talking about. He was in the uh, in Congress as a as a member. But seeing him up close, what do you know about Rahm Emanuel as a political strategist, political operative uh, that maybe uh, you would only see up close and personal? Well, that, that's a good question. You know, a- as you said, Rahm was a staffer, so he knows exactly everything that everyone in that building should be doing on a daily basis. So, you know, he he is he can be a tough boss and really knows what what everyone's role is and 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 is really pushing them to to do it well. He is tireless. He works incredibly hard. He swims at like the crack of dawn, and I would get calls on my cell phone like right after he got out of the pool with like all of the ideas he had for all of our frontline members. So he's never not thinking about how to win. Talk about some of the folks that you uh, interacted with, some of the, the, the people that you worked with at various levels at that DCCC cycle, a, a famous cycle, of course, where, where Democrats took back the House for the first time in over a decade. Yeah, it was it was that was like a superstar team. I mean, people uh, have gone to to great heights from from that DCCC. Current uh, White House press secretary Jen Psaki was one of the regional press people there. Um, Christina Reynolds was our um, research director. She's now over at Emily's List. Uh, Bill Burton, who was a press guy in the Obama White House, was was there. Sarah Feinberg, who worked in the White House with uh, for Obama, was at that DCCC. Um, Jen O'Malley was there for the first half of the cycle. She was one of the regional political directors. The executive director was is was John Lapp, who I later then married. So you know we we uh, we clearly got along. Um, so there, you know, it was it was a great team. It was a great staff, um, and it's been really fun to see where everyone has gone since then. And I guess this is a leading question, but but how formative was that experience at the DCCC in 2006 in terms of, you know, just three or four years later, you were starting House Majority Pact, you know, which obviously has a lot of overlap with the mission at the DCCC. Was that indeed uh, maybe the start of the germ or the first the first step in in, in your idea uh, and concept uh, to start HMP or, or is it not quite that simple? No, it, it really is that simple. You know, um, I was the campaign director and did frontline protection for a year. And then I moved over to the independent expenditure side of the DCCC. And I think we really, you know, created the modern IE over there at the DCCC in 2006 um, in terms of having, you know, teams of consultants who take on different races. And we did our own polling and, you know, produced countless ads and spent, you know, millions and millions of dollars. I I was the deputy director of the independent expenditure. So sort of watching that get stood up from soup to nuts and, you know, seeing the outcome there, I really realized in that cycle how much I loved independent expenditure work. And I remember talking to someone as that cycle was wrapping up somewhat, you know, sort of an older mentor type about like, what am I going to do next? I don't really know what I want to do. I love independent expenditures. And I remember the person saying to me, that's great, but like, you can't make a career out of just doing independent expenditures. There's just like, it's not a thing. And it really wasn't a thing back then. So I went to the private sector for a few years. And then when I saw Republicans were doing this on the IE side, you saw American Crossroads and what Karl Rove was doing. We had no answer on the Democratic side. So 
created House Majority Pact to kind of be that answer. 2006 was such a great cycle. You mentioned the people around you and obviously very successful. If you'd done it in like a different cycle that didn't go so well for Democrats, do you think that that might would have uh, extinguished some of your uh, some of your passion for that? And it was a, a factor of, you know, 2006, which is such a, a great experience to be a part of that, that maybe it made it all seem a little more fun and a little easier than it usually is. Yeah, maybe. I never thought about that. But but yeah, if I had been there in 2010, <laughs> You want to get out of the house uh, yeah, race maybe business. Be like, yeah, this this is no good. I don't I don't want anything to do with this anymore. Um, that's possible, but I really like, you know, I don't know. To me, I do really like kind of the setting up of all the processes and 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 getting everything or, organized. And that, that's I don't know. I I I like all I like all the process of doing an IE. Talk about that. You can't just roll out of bed one day and drop some paperwork and all of a sudden House Majority Pack is formed. Where do you trace back? You, know, you talked about maybe some of the very early foundation, but in terms of actually uh, thinking about this specific concept, uh, HMP starts in 2011, but how, how, how much before then were you kicking around the idea? And what does what is the process of you kicking the tires on this, talking to folks, trying to see if there is something here? Well, you know, how, what does that process look like? When does it start? Yeah, I think you saw in 2010, the Republican independent expenditures really effectively pad what was going to be their majority. You know, you had members who were not really thought to be in danger of losing, lose on election day, and in no small part because the Republican outside groups came in in the last 10 days and dumped a million dollars on their head. I'm not saying that it cost us the majority because I think we would have lost it anyway, but we did lose additional seats because of groups like American Crossroads. Um, and we, on the Democratic side, there was a small effort put together. It was a group called America's Families First. It was put together very late. It, it raised a few million dollars to try to help in some places. And so is it, is it pretty much as simple as both parties, you had a DCCC independent expenditure and a Republican NRCC independent expenditure that not necessarily cancel each other out, but are parallels. But the Republicans in that era had an additional player in the game uh, in American Crossroads that gave Republicans uh, a big advantage because there was not Huge. really a democratic uh, a democratic entity that served as a counterweight. Absolutely, absolutely. We didn't we didn't have an answer to that. And I think as the fur was flying, and you know October of 2010, I think there were people coming to that conclusion, like, "Who we got to fix this for next time." Um, and and you know after the election, having you know I had conversations with people who were sort of involved in House Democratic politics and thought like, you know, could we put this together? How much could we raise? And I was kind of ready to leave my private sector job and said like, you know what, let's try this and let's see how it goes. I was very fortunate. I was kind of in position to be able to do that and just see what happened. You know, I mean, I, I put it together, obviously didn't have a salary, didn't, didn't have a paycheck. I just said, let's, let's see what we can do. Can we raise some money can we start holding some of these Republicans accountable? And who are some of the, you know, whether it's the organizations or the individuals that you're talking about in that early process before you hit the play button, some of the people that you're trying to make sure have some buy-in? As, as you well know, you have to follow the law. And one very important law is that no members of Congress can be involved in the establishment of setting up a super PAC. 
So you would think logically what you'd want to do is go talk to members of Congress who actually would benefit from this and the future speaker. And you can't do that. And, you know, we're obviously incredibly careful about that. You, you just can't go and talk to them and say, hey, I'm thinking about setting up a super PAC that will help House Democrats like can't do it. So the people we did talk to were some of the other entities that had been involved in IE work for several years, you know, groups like League of Conservation Voters and Emily's List and labor groups who had been in this space. So everyone's like very supportive. Yes, it would be great to have a group that's sort of only focused on the House and can kind of help get us all on the same page. And then just individual wise, you know, I mean, the first people we really had on board were Nicole Rung and Bruce Keelock, two exceptional fundraisers, because you can't do anything if you don't have the money to do it. Um, and so the three of us, and with some guidance from Brian Wolf, who had been at the DCCC, and is, it was then in, by then in the private sector, put together a skeleton of a plan for the off year and said, let's see if we can raise some money. And, and here's what we'll do if we can raise it. And we'll see if we can pick up some seats in 2012. It's not a surefire thing, right? Especially back then. It was risky. It could have flopped on its face. Let's talk about that. Was there a moment that you realized, okay, this is coming together? In the early days, you think maybe this takes, maybe it doesn't. Was there was there a moment? Was there an occurrence in those first few weeks, first few months when you think, okay, this is actually starting to, uh, to, to look like what I want it to look like? One of the first things we did was pull together a million dollars to do some accountability ads on Republicans who had voted for the budget. And so it felt very good that you could pull together a million dollars and actually produce communications, holding people accountable. I I think what can happen so often and not so much back then, because there wasn't a proliferation of outside groups like there is now, an entity can go out and raise $10 million or a million dollars and spend 70% of it on nothing. We were always very, very serious about like keeping overhead extremely low and making sure that when we raised money, we actually spent it for what we said we were going to spend it on. So that, that was a great early moment. And then later on in the cycle, I think our original goal was, can we raise $20 million? And when we got to over 30 million, we said, well, that's quite an increase over what so, we thought we could do. So that, that, was, that was definitely a great moment too. Right. Well, you know, in that first, but, cycle, but mm-hmm. I will, but I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this, the most depressing moment we had, I think it was this first cycle where we had finally, after, so it was like a year after a year or 14 months, we had raised $5 million. We were very pleased literally like a week later, Sheldon Adelson writes a $5 million check to the other side. Like, oh my gosh, really? That Our $5 million was so hard. And he just comes and writes a $5 million check. Give maybe just your elevator pitch on exactly what HMP is just for, just for context, but also just talk about, especially in that first cycle or two, all the various different hats that you're having to wear. Sure. Uh, House Majority PAC is a super PAC that is focused exclusively on helping House Democrats win election. House Majority PAC as a super PAC can take unlimited amounts of money from most sources, individuals, labor unions, companies, etc. However, it cannot coordinate with any party committees or candidates on the spending of its money. So what House Majority PAC essentially does is run independent expenditure campaigns, mostly paid advertising, which includes television, radio, digital, 
male, et cetera, tries to, you know, convince voters to vote for the Democrat and not for the Republican. So that's essentially what HMP does. And, you know, in those early days, you're the spokesperson for the organization, you're the fundraiser, you're the chief strategist, you're managing a staff, you know, like I said, it's always kind of been a pretty lean staff um, and managing consultants. So you're kind of, you know, you're, you're wearing a lot of different hats, kind of doing it all, making sure most importantly, that the money's coming in and that you are spending it wisely. Obviously, you've been a success at all of that. HMP has grown leaps and bounds. Uh, is there one of those roles that was more difficult for you to get your arms around uh, uh, in those early days? Well, I was never a huge fundraiser. That's not really the world I come out of. And, you know, we employed fundraisers who did amazing work, but it still is something I had to be a part of and, and make pitches and go and talk to donors and convince them to write us big checks. And so that was definitely new to me and something I had not done as much of before. How did you get good at it? <laughs> um, a lot of help, a lot of help from my fundraisers who like gave me good tips and gave me advice. And part of it is, I think I learned is that when you have a good product to sell and you have a good strategy and you, you know, know what you're talking about and you have a record of success, it's, it then becomes something that people are interested in investing in. So part of it, I felt like you can be a good fundraiser if you're good at everything else you do in your job too. Beyond just getting bigger, raising more money, how has the role of House Majority PAC uh, changed over the last decade? Well, the biggest change that we've had at HMP is after 2018, we created a hard side to the organization. So it, it looks a little bit more like an Emily's list now where there's a hard side that can work directly with candidates and the DCCC um, on certain things. And then we still have an independent expenditure arm where the vast majority of the money gets spent and you cannot coordinate with candidates or the party committees over there. What was the thinking of, of taking on that new, that new challenge of, of branching out into the hard side? You know, a, a couple things. One, um, as we have grown and as Democrats now have the majority, we thought, you know, boy, it, it would make a lot of sense for us to be able to be a part of talking to candidates. It makes sense for us to be able to advocate on behalf, you know, po for policy positions and do some advocacy work as well. A lot of entities do advocacy, um, you know, from labor to environmental groups, et cetera. So we felt like it would really allow House Majority PAC to be a more complete entity and be involved in kind of every aspect of political campaigns for the House. Many cycles, 2018 cycle, for example, Democrats had a really great cycle. Uh, but is it difficult for HMP after a year like 2014, which can generally consider Republican uh, wave year? Is that are you having to go back to the drawing board and, and, and convince people to, to stay on board after a year like 2014? Or are, are people realizing that, that HMP is a vital part of the of the process and, and are willing to get back in the trenches with you? I think after any cycle, no matter how successful it was, I think you go back and you go back to the drawing board to some degree. You look and see what worked, what didn't. The communications landscape is always changing. Look, we all know people are consuming media differently than they did in 2012. And so constantly making sure you're doing the right thing, your polling is accurate, you're playing in the right races. I mean, every cycle, even a great one like 2018, you say, oh boy, like our data was really off in this district. What went wrong? Or we missed this opportunity. How come? So 
you're always going back and looking at that. We never think like we have all the answers. We do everything perfectly all the time. And I, I think in terms of how donors approach it, even in a cycle where we had some tough losses, like a 14 or even in 20, where, you know, we are, our majority shrunk. And you can only imagine how much worse it would be if we weren't there to counter what the Republicans were saying. So, you know, I think the, the idea of like, oh, you know, we lost 10 seats in this cycle. Let's let's just not have that communication. Well, that doesn't make any sense. That just means you would have lost even more seats. So, you know, I, I don't feel like that's too much of a challenge for us. You know, we're extremely responsive to people who are supportive of us, whether that's other entities that we partner with or direct donors. We're always looking for ways to improve what we're doing, make sure that we're you know, doing everything in our power to win seats for Democrats. And that doesn't matter if, you know, if that's after 2020 or 2018, whatever the cycle looks like. To that point, you're one of the few people, I mean, you could probably count them on one hand, uh, who see the entire House field, who think about the entire House playing field without naming specific campaigns. Uh, but are there consistent mistakes or unforced errors that you see campaigns making I would say the most common error campaigns, Democratic campaigns tend to make is not doing enough of the self-research and trying to shore up any potential weaknesses you may have early. Um, And kind of coupled with that is maybe like not quite enough debate slash town hall prep and letting something stupid slip out in the middle, you know, on the record. Um, those are the things that I think can really kind of kill a campaign. Um, so that, that's probably what I would highlight. Yeah. And is there uh, something that you've seen that Republicans do over the course of, of, of time uh, or the Republican allies do uh, that you think that they do do well, that they maybe do something that's that's even a little bit better than what's going on on the Democratic side? Well, they're just happy to push the envelope and paint Democrats in the most unflattering way possible. Um you know, it doesn't matter if a Democratic candidate did not come out for Medicare for all, they'll find a way to make it sound like they did. And they just really can push those the envelope on some of those issues, even if the Democratic candidate has been very measured in what they've said on whatever hot button issue it is they want to push. So they're pretty they're pretty effective at, at doing that. Um, and uh, I, th- I think I think their lawyers let them get away with more than our lawyers do. <laughs> right. A constant a constant uh, uh, gripe uh, on the Democratic side. Uh, is there a specific race, uh, you know, in, the, in that era that you would think of? Obviously, the campaigns are, are, are what matter most. But is there a specific race you can think of that something HMP did, a decision that HMP did uh, uh, might have actually helped win a race that could have otherwise been lost? Well, one of my favorite examples of a, of a high impact HMP move is from 2016 in uh, northern New Jersey. In New Jersey 5, um, the Republican incumbent was Scott Garrett, who was not just sort of a typical suburban Republican. He was quite socially conservative. He's and- a, Randy, a Randy Tate Republican. Yes, even even more, I would say. I mean, he had said some really awful things about gay people to the point where businesses and companies in his district were refusing to give to him anymore because he was so out there. So we had a great candidate running against him, Josh Gottheimer. And in our early polling, we found Scott Garrett's support was still really high, but nobody knew any of this controversial stuff. And as soon as we told them, his support plummeted. 
And it's a very expensive media market. It's the New York City media market. It's tough to break through. And we decided, look, if we don't start telling people now who this guy really is, we're not going to be able to win. Even with a great Democratic candidate, it's just going to be too late and it's hard to break through. So we made a strategic decision to go on cable early. We married that cable with some mail to targeted people and started telling people like this guy is a homophobic bigot. My favorite move of that early campaign was over 4th of July weekend, we actually ran airplane banners over the Jersey Shore. And one of my favorite stories about that is we were literally sitting in a room, which of course we can't do these days because of COVID, but we're sitting in a room, we're having our you know consultant team retreat, we're talking about this race, talking about going on early and someone said, what I worry about is like no one in New Jersey's home at in the summer. They're all at the shore. Like we're going to run these cable ads, but what if no one sees them? And we jokingly said like, well, then what we should do is just get those airplane banners that run over, that go over the Jersey shore. And we decided to do it. And it was really, you know, did it win the race for us? I don't know. But we don't, we don't, we don't know that it didn't win the race for us, right? Yeah, you know? Sure. Well, and that was famously one of the only handful of districts that a Democrat carried in 2016 uh, that also Donald Trump carried. So so something yeah. was going on uh, in 2016. Well, that's a great example. What about the other side of the coin? Is there a district, uh, a Republican candidate who's just vexed you over the years? Southern Texas. Uh, Texas 23, that district is just always the bane of our existence. It's expensive to communicate in. It flips back and forth. It's so difficult to poll there, as you know. Um, that district's always just a headache. And then the Central Valley of California, California 21, it's a district that votes Democratic at the presidential level. It elected Republican David Valadeo forever. We finally got it in 18, lost it in 20. I would have said the same thing five years ago about, you know, a Colorado six, which is suburban Denver. We could never manage to win that district until finally we did. And now we don't even have to play there anymore. So that's the thing about these districts is you fight and fight and fight and eventually you win. And then suddenly it becomes safe. Right. So I'm hoping for the same thing in the central Valley of California someday, but we're not there yet. HMP pretty much exclusively in the communications is on the attack, make, making critical cases against Republican candidates. What is your best practices about an effective negative attack ad? I think you can't be over the top. I think you have to lay it out clearly so it's understandable. And I always say, don't put too much spin on the ball. One of the best lessons I learned from this was all the way back in 2006 when then Sheriff Brad Ellsworth from Southern Indiana was running for Congress. As sheriff, he there had been some kind of incident where like a real bad guy had gotten let out of jail accidentally and then done something bad. And the Republicans attacked him on it. And the attack was 100% true. Like it was, it was true. This had happened and he was sheriff. And their, their ad was so over the top. It was like scary music. It was just so over the top. And we did focus groups in that district and every single person in the focus group was like, there is no way that's true. That's ridiculous. They didn't believe it. And, you know, it's just a good reminder that if, if an attack is true and you want it to stick, you have to lay it out for people, let them draw their own conclusions.
So at HMP and in other places as well, you've hired a lot of people over the years, been part of hiring processes. I'm sure whenever you're hiring, uh, whenever you're looking to bring on people, you're getting plenty of good resumes. Resumes maybe look sort of similar beyond basic core competency and, and, and feeling confident that they you know, have some basic level to do the job. Uh, what are things that stand out to you when you're hiring people? What are things that stand out either in an interview process, on a resume uh, that might uh, help someone stand out in that process? That's a good question. I, you know, look, I think, as you said, you get so many resumes for these jobs. So when someone that you know and have worked with and have worked with in the past brings a resume to your attention, it definitely matters. So I would I always urge people who worked for us looking for other jobs, like tell us when you're applying for things, because we'll at least let them know, hey, you should pay attention to this resume. Sometimes it's just a matter of getting a resume um, noticed. I, I think that's really, really important. Um, and, you know, in terms of what we're looking for when we hire, you know, that the organization, the attention to detail, good political judgment, those are all super critical. And I would say in, in the political world, but particularly in the independent expenditure world, speed is really important. And so you don't want to sacrifice quality or doing your due diligence. But there is also, you know, the product moves really, really fast and you have to be able to keep up with that and, and keep the product moving in order to make deadlines. And what about on the managing side of it? Um, you started an organization from scratch that most recently, most recent cycle raised how much? Well over $100 million. So to take it from zero to well over $100 million. So you must know something about managing people, putting together an organization. Uh, what have you learned about uh, how to manage people, how to get the most out of people? I think having very clear expectations is, is really important. I think working with your team on goals um, is also very important. You know, I think in, about fundraising and, you know, if I just went to my fundraising team and said, we need to raise $15 million this quarter. That's the end of it. And you go figure out how to do it. That doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, you got to sit down with people and kind of figure out what's a high end, what's a low end. Let, let's work on this together. I also think, you know, to be a good manager, you really have to always be open to other people's ideas um, and take the time, especially at the beginning of the process, to teach someone how to take their skills to the next level. You know, if someone comes to you with an idea, don't just take it and then do all the vetting for them and talk to the pollster and talk to the people you need to talk to. Explain to them, okay, great. Here's the next step that you need to take. Can you go talk to your consultant team about it? Get their feedback on it. Can you go talk to, you know, our partner Emily's list on this? And, and you kind of have to take that time to teach them how to how to take it to the next level. Yeah, that's that's great advice. But do you have any advice for for young people looking to get into politics? You've been very generous with your advice thus far. Anything maybe we haven't touched on to that to that kid in college uh, to somebody deciding between a different career path, maybe has a little bit of an interest in politics but isn't quite sure how to get in the door. Do you have yeah. you know additional advice for that person? Yeah, a, a couple things. One I know that political internships and, and jobs are doing much better now than they used to in terms of having paid internships, but there's still so much you can learn by volunteering and doing things that are unpaid. So, you know, when I volunteered on Adam Smith's state Senate race, I was also working two other jobs to pay my bills in college. So, you know, you can do more than one thing. And I would say when you're in school, when you're in college, go volunteer on campaigns, take that on, get some early experience while you can. 
I would also say, especially when you're young and maybe not married with a family, be willing to move somewhere else in the country. To work in politics, you do not have to be in D.C. Go work on a campaign in Omaha. Go work on a campaign in Montana. Go somewhere and and see a different part of the country and learn about campaigning from the ground floor. And then finally, I would say to people as you're starting to move up in your career, don't wait too long to find a role where you have decision making power. You know, I talk to a lot of people who have done a year or two in politics and they're really trying to decide should I go manage this state Senate race or this smaller level race, or should I go be the field director on a statewide? And my bias, it's just my bias, but I always say, go manage something small, go somewhere where you have to make the decisions because that I think will teach you more than anything. And when you're the one managing, it really does matter and will set you up well for whatever you want to do next. So don't wait too long to find a role where you get to make some real decisions. Yeah, that's 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 such smart advice. One of my last questions here, and this is something I've borrowed from The Economist, Tyler Cowan, but to paraphrase him, he might ask about the alley lap production function, meaning there's a lot of smart people out there. There's a lot of people who work hard, uh, but what is different about you? What's unique about you that you think you've been able to be so successful in what you've done? Well, that's such a flattering question, Zach. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Look, there's no question I have been very lucky in a lot of ways. As I mentioned before, I was lucky to work for Adam Smith, who was so willing to give a 21-year-old a lot of responsibility. I was lucky to be at the DCCC in 2006. It was the perfect cycle to go on and do what I wanted to do. I was lucky to be in position in 2011 where I could basically not make any money for six months while I tried to set this thing up and see if it would work. So there, there is luck for sure. I would say one trait I have that maybe has maybe has helped me also is that I've always known that I don't have all the answers. You know, when I started House Majority PAC, there there were other groups that were doing independent expenditure work, and I really relied on their knowledge and experience and tried to figure out how can I be a resource for you at HMP so that you all can be even more successful. I, you know, I didn't come in and say here we are, we're in charge, you have to do what we say now. Um, There's so many smart people in, in politics from consultants, former campaign managers, donors, advisors, and I love picking their brain and getting their perspective on how to win races, what works, what are you seeing in your part of the country, um, what do I need to know to do my job better. So, you know, look, my experience in politics has no question given me certain biases, I spent my political formative years working in a swing district that was coastal, mostly white, pretty socially liberal, but economically conservative. And I work in all kinds of districts now. And I, but I know that there's other people who know a lot more than I do about persuading Spanish speakers or voter turnout operations or appealing to more kind of socially conservative voters or working in a state that I've never lived in, like Nebraska. Um, so I, I think remembering that no matter what your position is, no matter what you're in charge of, no matter how many years of experience you have, there's always more to learn and others who have a lot to bring to the table. So I've always tried to approach it from that perspective and been really open to other people's ideas, taken it all in, and then made the decisions I've needed to make based on the best information I've had. Well, let's end on this, Allie. Uh, What is a recommendation? This doesn't have to be 
brain food, it can be comfort food, but what's something, a book, a television show, a movie, a recipe, a product, something you've gotten into recently that you'd recommend people give a try? Okay. I'm going to give you two. One is Ted Lasso because everyone needs Ted Lasso. I mean, like it's been so, it, we just finished the series. It's so fun. Everyone should watch Ted Lasso. And then secondly, the other series we have been really into in, in my household is WandaVision on Disney+. Plus. Um, I have three boys. They are all super into the MCU. That's Marvel Cinematic Universe, for those of you that don't know, which I did not know until, you know, about a month ago. And they have dra- they dragged me into WandaVision. And now, like, I'm all in. It's super fun. Even for someone who's not into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, watching it with the kids and my husband. It's been a lot of fun. Well, Allie Latt, thank you for escaping from the MCU for a moment and joining me here today. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Zach. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.